As hundreds of thousands of Chicago area residents prepare for holiday travel, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul is urging federal regulators to require more accountability from airlines. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local market. This week, we'll look at some of the biggest housing news of 2022. One of the reasons I'm sort of fixated on sales volume, as you know, is that that is a pretty strong indicator of the economy because when I buy a house, I buy rugs, window coverings, furniture, all that. And so there's a very large spinoff effect or, or multiplier effect from the purchase of a home. And so if we're down below 2017-2019 levels, that's going to have a pretty strong knock-on effect on our local economy. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, December 22nd. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Only, I always say that, it's actually news of the year from the local housing market. That's a little more fitting this week. Yeah, it's true. It's a way to send the, the year off with, I'm sorry to say, a thud Yeah. with the numbers we're about to discuss. Let's start by talking about that thud. Let's talk about uh, the housing market and inflation. Yeah, so uh, the data that came out for November shows the, we now really can feel the, the effect of the inflation fight on the housing market. Uh, it, everybody knew it would sort of, it would be delayed and we have see, been seeing effects, but now you can really tell. Uh, the data for November was pretty weak. The figure for the metro area shows prices up only 1.7% in November from a year before. That's the weakest figure since either May 2020, or if you don't even want to think about the pandemic, because of course that made it, took a big whack out of everything, that's the lowest uh, home price increase for the region, for the nine-county metro area, since September 2019. Um, it, you know, we were seeing double-digit price growth for a while, and it's been uh, region-wide, it's been stepping down month after month after month to 1.7% in November. That's some serious weakness. Um, and I have some other data, but I want to see what you have to say first. I, I'm here for all of all the numbers that you have. As I often say, you do the math so the rest of us don't have to. And I'll be even more interested to hear like the final, final. I know we're basically at the end of the year, but like the final, final, because there's a lag time of getting some of that data. So in January and February, when we can look at the full year, I think that's going to be a really fascinating story that it will tell. It is going to be important. And one of the things we will pay attention to, I'm about to go into sales volume. Year-end sales volume will be very interesting because though I'm about to talk about weakness, 
Um, because the first half of 2022 was still that raging part of the boom, um, home, home sales are still up from the years before the pandemic. However, uh, December, if, if things slow down even more in December, we'll see a bigger drop. So let's talk about home sales. November home sales were the lowest for both the city and the larger metro area. The home sales figure was the lowest for November since 2011. Interesting. Yeah, November 2011 or 2011 overall is when we were really struggling to rise up out of that last housing crash. So that was an extremely weak time, and we're back to that level of sales, which is to say, you know, people have been telling me when we've put out some of this data uh, in recent weeks, they've said, oh, seasonality is back. Well, one of the reasons that was worthy of note is that seasonality had not played into 2021 or even 2020 in November, December of those years. Things were just raging um, out of the bounds of ordinary seasonality because we had such a housing boom going on. So we've dropped below that and well below that. Um, so I said it was the lowest since 2011 for both regions, both the city and the larger region. It's also, the other thing I did is I compared, speaking of seasonality, I compared uh, monthly sales in November to the average for Novembers of 2017 to 2019, which were normal years prior to the boom. Um, in the city, November home sales were 16% below that three-year average in November. And in the metro area, they were, four, uh, I'm sorry, in the city, they were 16.6 below, nearly 17%. Um, and in the metro area, 14.7%, nearly 15% below the average November sales for the Novembers of 2017 to 2019, which is to say we're well below the old mm -hmm. normal sales level. Um, right. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in December, but um, one of the reasons I'm sort of fixated on sales volume, as you know, is that that is a pretty strong indicator of the economy because when I buy a house, I buy um, rugs, furniture, window drapes, coverings, furniture, yeah. all that. And so there's a very large spin-off effect or, or multiplier effect from the purchase of a home. And so if we're down below... 2017, 2019 levels, that's going to have a pretty strong knock-on effect on our local economy. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I say this every week, I feel like, but just the story that numbers tell, um, it, it's always it's always fascinating because of exactly what you just named, because of their, we know that that's an economic indicator for this reason. I think that's always so, so very interesting. Well, so let's talk about some specific um, purchases. Uh, in particular, you wrote about who bought and sold at the higher end of the market this year. Talk to me about that. I did. So that was sort of a look back during um, in December, and we saw some big moves. We uh, we saw, of course, Ken Griffin uh, sell, buying in Florida or building up his estate in Florida and selling off um, part of his uh, $58 million condo portfolio in Chicago. He's had one sell very quickly, one went under contract very quickly. There are a few others still for sale. Um, we also had, of course, the purchases, well, it wasn't really purchases in 2022, but the, the sort of, um, I hate to say, I guess standoff is better than battle. The standoff in Winnetka over Justin Ishbia's multiple purchases on the shoreline in Winnetka. 
um, and several other just sort of, you know, the people at that end of the market have been busy. Yeah, certainly. And what is our count up to as of as of this recording when we're looking at the higher end of the market? So ordinarily, I count all the sales at four million dollars and up. Uh, the average in the five years prior to 2021 was 51 sales, 51 and a half sales per year at $4 million and up. In 2021, it went up to 108, and we're now at 131. Wow. Yeah, usually the, the year doesn't really end on December 31st. There's usually one or two that get added. So we, we might be, we're, we're already well above twice the old average and well above 2021, but... Um, we're at 131. If it stops now, it's still a record year. I don't think we'd crossed 130 last time we talked. No, I, probably not. I think we were like 128, 129. I think yeah. we were kind of right there. It's pretty amazing. And so, you know, um, I've been counting 4 million because that was, that was the bottom of the extreme upper end for so long. Now, I, I believe the story we put out in January with the top 50 sales, we won't even be mentioning the number 4 million. I think the fifth, the top 50 stop at 5.4 million so far this year. I think that's where we are. So, I mean, that's a big jump over the course of two years. Last year, it was, it was above 4 million. Um, and, but I don't think we've ever been above 5 million for the top 50 sales of the year. I'm sorry, we need to go to the tape because I do believe I said you're going to have to make the floor much higher than four million this year. Do yeah. you believe I said that? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It, and part of that is I, I can't remember the number. I don't have it in front of me, but we've had multiple sales over 10 million and two sales over $20 million. Completely unprecedented in the Chicago housing market. Yeah, that'll do it. Well, let's talk about some other big sales. Uh, in particular, you covered a lot of sports figures this year who, who bought and sold and, and made other kind of real estate deals. Tell me about that. I did. So another look back story. We've had, we have had people from um, Bulls, Bears, Blackhawks, Cubs all sell or buy this year. I, once again, I've said this. Do we have a White Sox Once again, I, I've said this before. I have so infrequently covered the White Sox. This is not a north side, south side thing. Uh, it's just the White Sox players, um, other than Frank Thomas and a few others, they just really haven't been um, big in the news. Right. But we had um, a former Bears coach sell. We had uh, a couple of Cubs sell big houses. Um, all of that, of course, is online at, at chicagobusiness.com in this roundup that I put together. Certainly. And yet, Michael Jordan's home still, still sits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Uh, will February be 11 years or 12? I think Febu Feb in February it will be 12. Yeah, I think it's 12. So watch for that story in February. I really hope when that eventually moves that you get there first because you have followed Michael Jordan's home <laughs> for so long, Dennis. Yeah. I knew I knew you were covering that story before I even knew you. <laughs> like, I, I was like, that guy's really covering that that house a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if you know, but I have a 30-year relationship with Michael Jordan's house. Back in 1991, I was the first to report where he was building this giant house that has now been for sale for whatever it is, 11 or 12 Almost years. half of that time. Yeah. 1990, <laughs> I remember, I can could tell you the whole long, boring story, but... I rode my bike past Michael Jordan's house this morning, and um, I thought of the fact that I have this. And you, you just gave it like the De Niro eyes. You pointed at your eyes. You pointed at the house like, <laughs> one of these days, I'm breaking the story, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> you drive by on your bike. I hadn't thought about it. Now I'm going to have to do it. Every time I ride my bike, I'm going to have to do this to the house. Uh, all right. So let's see. Other things you have written about recently that I want to talk about. Um, talk to me about uh, how one of the top five residential brokerages just expanded in a very big way. This was actually a big gulp that this company took. Um, this is Caldwell Banker the Caldwell Banker that is based in Shorewood. We have two entities in our marketplace called Caldwell Banker. One, most people are familiar with if they're in the city and northern and western close-in suburbs. The other, the one we're talking about this morning, uh, is primarily in outer ring suburbs, uh, based, as I said, in Shorewood, which is next to Joliet, has a lot of business in Wisconsin. That one is called Caldwell Banker Real Estate Group. Now, to make it even more complicated, in the year-end data that uh, from 2021, which we get from a consultancy and, and publish, I think, in March, um, in the 2021 data, uh, this Caldwell Banker was the fourth largest brokerage in the region, and the other Caldwell Banker was the third largest brokerage in the region. Above them are Baird & Warner and At Properties, uh, now At Properties Christie's International Real Estate. So Caldwell Banker Real Estate Group, a family-owned franchise group, uh, of Caldwell Banker offices had $5 billion in sales in 2021. Don't, of course, have the 2022 figures yet. And last week, they bought out um, D'April Properties, which is based in the West Loop, and had $1.2 billion in sales. So they became, very quickly, a $6.2 billion company. They bought, you know, about 20%, uh, something that was 20% their size grew by that much. Um, the interesting thing is, of course, once again, don't have 2022 figures, but um, if everything remains the same, that won't move them up in our rankings because the other Caldwell Banker was at uh, $7 billion last year. And again, this Caldwell Banker was at five. So big gap between them. Not that they bought it in order to, uh, they aren't even paying attention to our rankings. I am. Um, but, they, but it is a very significant move. And one of the things I think is interesting is um, when you do this list of five, if you were just to ask the person, on, or well, the person on the street who cares about Chicago real estate, they would mention at Properties Christie's, they would mention um, Baird and Warner. They'd be unlikely to mention, oh yeah, Caldwell Banker based in Joliet, based in Shorewood. But this firm is, is very big. They had 1,700 agents before they bought D'April, and D'April had 380. So they're going to have over 2,000 agents working in our marketplace, uh, which for them includes Wisconsin. Their, um, their first big bite that I wrote about several years ago, they bought a firm that was based primarily in the sort of Door County, Green Bay area. Um, what they've bought is more Lake Geneva. So they sort of go from, they're kind of a band from... Um, Shorewood, south, and then north up into Wisconsin. Big firm. Um, and so we, if you, it helps the brand overall, the Caldwell Banker brand overall. I was talking about whether people would know about this firm. They certainly know the name Caldwell Banker. Um, so between them, those two would be about $13 billion in sales in 2021. And I'm, I'm sure people are paying far more attention to your rankings than you think, Dennis. <laughs> Give yourself some credit. It's a beloved list. What else should I rank? Let me, uh, would you like my list of top podcast hosts? Uh, I better be in the top three. That's all I'm saying. You're in the top one. Oh, thank you, Dennis. <laughs> and in my list of 
top residential real estate reporters, you are also in my top one. There, that's enough mushy stuff. All right. Uh, let's talk about affordable housing, in particular, kind of filling the affordable housing gap with modern and sustainable, in a, in a modern, sustainable way, I should say. Yeah, this is another piece of that um, Invest Southwest strategy that Mayor Lightfoot's administration um, has been behind. This is a new part. That, of course, is primarily commercial projects, as you and Danny Ecker have discussed extensively. This is a residential piece that is uh, sort of related to what we talked about recently, where the city streamlined its, uh, its effort to sell the many vacant lots it owns. This part comes a, is a design contest. Uh, the city, city hall offices are involved, and so is the Chicago Architecture Center. They are calling on architects to come up with a new form of affordable housing for Chicago. Uh, like the bungalow of its day, like the uh, Greystone of its day, what would be right, what would be affordable to build, what would be environmentally sustainable, also sustainable uh, by the family, uh, sustainable on a middle income, um, that would be right for this era, that could be built on, uh, originally built, uh, I should say initially built on some of the Invest Southwest sites that have been targeted, because the idea is if you're bringing back commercial life into those corridors, as Mayor Lightfoot would like to do, you also need to bring back residential life, build up residential life uh, to support those commercial um, entities. So build some housing, build some of this new affordable housing on these, these uh, lots. But then also the idea from both the Architecture Center and the Department of Housing is that these would be um, prototypes that might be, um, you might think of it as sort of like a Sears kit house where our grandparents, our great grandparents, I'm not sure who that would have been, would be looking at sort of a book and say, yeah, I want that model and here's a, a materials list and it's going to cost me this much to buy these materials. So it will, it will be affordable to build and it's also predictable because I have all these lists. I know exactly what I need to do. So if I were um, say a buyer of one of those city vacant lots and as you know from our previous discussion there's sort of an there's an interest from city hall and people building residential units on those vacant lots then I'm able to say the lot cost me this building a new two flat in this design cost me that my total is this um, and the city part of this program also includes looking for um, different forms of financing what other subsidies or I should say incentives the city can provide. So the idea is to really sort of spur a round of affordable housing construction. We're at the very initial stages. The, right now it's just uh, by January 9th, architects are being invited to register um, and get all the requirements uh, for what their entries would be. Later there will be developers entering. The city will pair developers with architects. And then down the line, the idea is, here's what we came up with. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I'll be very curious to follow that in the year ahead. But it seems like that's that's going to be a long process. By the time you get to the point of, we've picked this architect and this developer and all of that, that seems maybe a year at best. That seems like it'd be a long time. It is, yeah. And, and it also is a long-term effort. The idea is that you know we're not going to solve these problems in these disinvested neighborhoods tomorrow. 
how can we build something that once again the idea is that it is sustainable and sustainable on my household income if I'm living in that neighborhood and wanting to build um, so yeah there are a lot of a lot of moving parts here and we'll be following all of them over the course of time all of them Indeed. All right. We've got some houses to talk about. Let's start by talking about uh, Adam Kinzinger, who has sold his Illinois home. Yeah, I was interested to, to discover this. Adam Kinzinger, for those who don't know, is a Republican, uh, as of now, is still a Republican member of the House of Representatives representing a district in, uh, is it fair to call that the western suburbs? It's the far, far western suburbs. His home was in Chanahan. He, I, Chanahan, uh, yeah. pretty far out from the city this is about 50 miles from chicago uh he's in his sixth term uh he is leaving congress he did not run for re-election he's been a very vocal opponent of former president donald trump he was on the i guess he is on the select committee investigating um, the events of january 6th he's been pretty visible uh and he's both um Loved and hated, I know from the email I've gotten since this story came out. Um, <laughs> Poor Dennis. It's amazing. Uh, and of course, he knows, he knows far better than I do. He's, he's been on the firing line uh, as a Republican on the January 6th committee. Anyway, Kinzinger uh, in 2013 bought this townhouse in Chanahan for $143,000. Um, at that time, he was single. He later married. And he and his wife in... Um, October sold the house for $265,000. They had it on the market for only 11 days. The listing said um, the sellers are willing to sell the furniture. When I called the agent, the selling agent said, yeah, I think some of the furniture went with it. The buying agent didn't call me. So I don't know how much of the, their furniture the Kinzingers sold. That would be separate from this $265,000 sale price. And then the, the real news that comes with this is Adam Kinzinger, who is, uh, if he's not an Illinois native, he certainly grew up in and uh, has been in Illinois most of his life, told the Sun-Times that he's not necessarily staying in Illinois, um, might move to some national platform. Our Greg Hines has said, uh, I tried to find any purchase, so he sold this in October, and I looked in the county records both there, um, where this house is, and all of our other metro area counties, didn't find any record of him buying anything. He did not respond to requests for comment from either me or Greg Hines. Um, and what we'd like to know is, you know, either have you bought something somewhere else in the state or are you officially now a resident of some other place, Washington, D.C., let's say. Didn't respond, so we don't know. Do know that his name is not on any other property records. Uh, and that's the story. We'll see. Yeah, I do think that's a, that is an interesting piece to there. You know, there's so much speculation of what his political future holds. And so this is an interesting piece of that. A lot of speculation in my email. Um, the, the people who are opposed <laughs> to him and um, I've gotten a, a few emails from people saying uh, we refer to him as a rising star in the Republican ranks. Um, people saying, no, he's nothing of the sort. Um, he's a traitor. Uh, People who, Republicans who don't like him, really seriously don't like him. And, um, and that's actually part of the story I forgot to mention. Uh, not surprising he would put this on the market, put it on the market in September, because in June at home, he, he was on in the national news for this, he got a letter threatening 
from a person who threatened to execute him, his wife, and his child. Uh, so I don't know that that letter was mailed to this home. He referred to it as my home, and of course a representative, or my house, and a, a, a member of Congress would also be living in Washington. And I could not get comment from him, so I don't know for sure that it was this property he got the, that letter at, but it's a, pretty, it's a pretty horrible letter if you've seen the reproduction of that letter. I mean, they said some really awful things to him uh, and his wife. Yeah, certainly. Well, we will uh, stay tuned and see where he lands. All right, a couple of other houses to talk about. Let's talk about a country house in Schomburg. Not a thing I thought I was going to say, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, and so as the story says, it's country for a couple of reasons. One, so it's, uh, it's in Schomburg, which of course is now a very built-out suburb. Uh, when it was built in 1939, it was on a, uh, an estate of over 300 acres. It really was a country house. Um, and we'll talk about the house. But the other reason I called it a country house is, oh, hang on, let me, uh, I have a question for you, Amy. Um, would you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? I mean, who wouldn't? Is there a music cue? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not. Um, we weren't able to, to get the song. But uh, one of the reasons we call this a, a, a country house is that Bob Atcher, the singing cowboy of the old WLS barn dance, which later yeah. moved to WGN, um, Bob Atcher lived in this house from 1954 to 1989 with his wife Maggie. Bob sang, but I love this version of Christmas Island. The Andrews sisters put out a song about Christmas Island. Bob Atcher's version makes it, gives it this whole sort of Hawaiian sizzle. Right. Um, would you like to spend, and then oh, there are singing. women behind him. No, it's fine. Don't sing away. <laughs> no. My Christmas gift to you. I'm not singing. That's the gift. He might have worked on that here in this home. If he the might well have. He had adds up. Uh, the old coach house was where he apparently rehearsed. So that it is very like that coach house isn't standing anymore. He also had a hit with Blue Christmas before Elvis did. Good holiday hit. Yeah. So that's our Christmas tie in with this house. He also he was a very interesting guy. The mayor of Schaumburg for uh, 26 years and gets credit for bringing Woodfield Mall to Schaumburg. So big dude, but he, so he's been out of this house since 1989. Okay. The people who own it now, uh, who are putting it on the market now, um, bought it in the mid 2000s. They have done a lot of rehab, including creating this kitchen. Like a lot of old houses, it had a closed off kitchen. The house has these diamond pane windows. And one of the things they did is they have cabinets with glass doors that also have diamond pane windows. They did a lot to it. They also, there's this really wonderful um, sun porch that had, you know, you've got this great Tudor house and it looks so charming in 1930s-ish. They did a lot to it, uh, they all, but they were careful, as I said, with those diamond uh, patterned windows. They were careful to keep it looking the way it has looked since 1939. It's this great old um, Tudor. I've got my finger on the name, uh, F. Claire Hinckley was the architect who designed this really charming house uh, on, again, it was on over 300 acres. Most of that acreage has been sold off. It's on a half an acre now, and you're surrounded by Schaumburg. You're surrounded by newer houses, some of them in a Tudor style that picks up on this, but you're this sort of remnant of a 1930s version of Schaumburg. Yeah, definitely. You can tell they have put a lot of care into their updates. You can 
you know, you can kind of see in the kitchen cabinets, as you mentioned, the diamond window pane and some other little details kind of around the crown molding and things like that, that, that I think just really matters when you, when you see an addition or a renovation on an old house. To me, that's kind of the, the key thing that makes it really, really, really work. I think so. And I think you're right. And something that I didn't have room for in the story because I spent so much time on Bob Atcher is that they bought this in part because they really they wanted to do a really nice rehab of a historical house. They um, uh, they really wanted to find an old charmer and bring it back. And this one this one was in pretty good shape, but not the exquisite shape it's in now. Um, And I don't think I've said they're asking one point one million for it. And you know, I am a sucker for a house with a good story attached to it. So for all we know, he could have secretly been working on these holiday songs in that, you know, <laughs> somewhere in this house or in that guest cottage area. So, yeah. And if there's a soundproof room anywhere in it, then I can go in there and sing Christmas <laughs> Island and nobody has to hear me. <laughs> your singing will be your secret. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of the 1930s, uh, talk to me about a 1930s mansion, once part of a very vast estate that is for sale for the first time in 50 years and, because I love a house with a good story, has a tie-in with Yellow Cab. Tell me this. With Yellow Cab, yeah. Yeah, so if the one in Schaumburg used to be on over 300 acres, this was on a 940-acre country estate. This is in what's now called Trout Valley. It's 47 miles northwest of the city. Um, John D. Hertz and his wife Fanny um, John D. Hertz built, assembled farms to create this giant estate. Um, Hertz was the man who founded the firm, Yellow Cab, with another man. Also, essentially created the used car industry by opening Hertz uh, used cars, which still bears his name. And he was the man who first brought stoplights to Michigan. Oh, interesting. Avenue, which is either, yeah, we can either be grateful or, or not, <laughs> or not grateful that he did that. Yeah, but uh, he became they became fabulously wealthy. They built a 940-acre estate, and then uh, on this house is what they they had a 35-room mansion, and for their daughter's wedding gift, they built this house. Uh, Leona, the whole the estate was called Leona Farms, so obviously she was daddy's girl. Um, and they built her a mansion of her own, a 9,000 square foot mansion for her marriage. Um, she married a man named Alfred Etlinger. Uh, beautiful. This paneling we see here was brought from, um, the paneling was brought from a castle Oh, shoot, I'm blanking out, either in England or in Scotland. How dare you not know your castles, Dennis? <laughs> exactly. You know, when, you, when you're building a country house back at that time, there are a lot of these we've talked about in Lake Forest and elsewhere, a lot of salvage from other homes. And I think we're, and this room, the dining room, the wallpaper in there was steamed off the walls of a French chateau, wow. brought to this property, and then where it didn't fit, there was a painter commissioned to paint details to sort of extend the details of the wallpaper onto the wall with paint. Interesting. I mean, imagine trying to do that now. Imagine what it would cost. And that wallpaper, so that's 1939, and the wallpaper is still there today. Uh, this house is on the market for the first time in over 50 years. Uh, Leona Etlinger uh, moved out. She also divorced Etlinger and married somebody else. Um, but the property, all the estate, all stayed together. The next owners of that 940-acre estate used this as their guest house. And at one point, according to some letters, used to store hay in the living room. They had horses 
And so in a house like this, they were using the living room to store hay. Um, and then ultimately in 1974, a couple bought it. They did a lot of restoration over time. They combined little rooms to make a big family room. Uh, they have both died, so it's being sold by their heirs, uh, their estate. The asking price is uh, $2.25 million. It's behind gates, and what's interesting, I said about this in the story, is it's actually sort of behind two sets of gates. The old estate is now the town of Trout Valley, and you drive through the old Hertz gates to get into Trout Valley, drive about another mile to this house within Trout Valley, and go through another set of gates. So you've got some privacy. What you don't have behind those gates is the grave of a racehorse. There's a long time story um, that, so racehorses were raised on, prize winning racehorses were raised on the Hertz estate. And there's a long time story that a lot of people will tell you that one of the most famous horses was buried in the driveway behind those gates. But it's not true. <laughs> but it's not true. There are letters from Leona and her son uh, to the owners in the 1970s saying, no, that never, ever happened. There is not a horse buried in the driveway. Hmm. Which horse was it? Um, I don't know, Amy. Dan Patch. <laughs> I have no Just idea. Just curious. All right. Well, glad we settled that. I have a week off between the holidays. I'll look up, I'll research the name of the horse. Thank you. I need to know everything about the racehorses. Uh, well, that settled that. There's no racehorse buried on that. We need to bring that up with every house now. And there's no racehorse buried there. All right. Well, we are off in the week ahead, but uh, in the new year, what might we look forward to talking about, Dennis? Well, one of the things I'll be starting on as the year starts is, the, is uh, both the list of the most expensive sales. Um, which we've already talked about, and sort of that year-end data that shows where did we end up. I've been talking about it all year. I can't wait to dig into yeah. it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. I've got to go. I've got a vocal lesson. I've got to go. That's right. <laughs> Please record all of that. <laughs> Coming up, the Anti-Defamation League says there's an increase in hate crime incidents in the Midwest, even with major gaps in reporting. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to help communities facing an elevated need right now. Decades-high inflation is making it even harder for our neighbors to afford groceries, and food insecurity is above pre-pandemic levels. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Let's rise to the challenge, Chicago. Your neighbor is hungry. Give what you can to the Greater Chicago Food Depository at chicagosfoodbank.org. As hundreds of thousands of Chicago-area residents prepare to hit the holiday season road, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul is urging federal regulators to substantially up their game in dealing with recalcitrant airlines. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines noted that in a letter signed by a bipartisan coalition of 34 state attorneys general, Raoul urged the U.S. Department of Transportation to, quote, develop clearer protocols to ensure timely and effective enforcement of federal rules, particularly regarding when travelers can get a ticket refund and related consumer protections. Hines said specifically, Raul and colleagues asked that the department require airlines to only advertise and sell seats on flights they actually have enough personnel to operate, 
to make clear that it will impose significant fines for cancellations and extended delays that are not weather-related or otherwise unavoidable, and that it ban airlines from canceling flights while simultaneously offering bumped passengers more expensive alternative flights to the same destinations. The letter to U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says that while his proposed rules, which are expected to be finalized early next year, do contain some positive measures, he and his colleagues believe those rules should be strengthened. Arthur J. Gallagher has unveiled its largest deal ever for a benefits consulting firm. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that the Rolling Meadows-based commercial insurance brokerage has acquired the partnership interests of BCHR Holdings, which does business as Buck, for about $660 million in cash. Daniels reported, citing a news release from Gallagher announcing the deal, that Buck is more than 100 years old, employs more than 2,300 workers, and generated about 200 million in revenue in the year that ended September 30th. Gallagher said it would fund the purchase with free cash flow and short-term borrowings. Daniels also noted in reporting that Gallagher is the world's fourth largest commercial insurance brokerage, but it has a growing worker benefits arm and aims to augment both businesses through acquisitions. On the news, Gallagher's stock closed up 180 or nearly 1%. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that Mondelez is selling its gum business in the U.S. for $1.35 billion, offloading well-known brands like Trident that struggled to recover from the masked, homebound days of COVID-19 stay-home measures. The buyer is Perfetti Vandermel Group, a European company that makes brands such as Mentos. The sale includes gum brands Trident, Dentine, Chiclets, Bubblicious, and others in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, plus three European candy brands. Mondelez will continue to operate its gum business elsewhere, such as the Stride brand in China. The sale also includes a manufacturing facility in Rockford. Marathi noted that Oreo maker Mondelez announced the sale in a statement and that the company began considering a divestiture of its struggling gum brands in 2021 and reported earlier this year that it planned to sell them. Workers on the Mondelez gum business will transfer to Perfetti Vandermel with a sale, according to a news release. Mondelez CEO Dirk Vandeput, who took the wheel at Mondelez about five years ago, deployed a strategy in which 90% of the company's revenue would come from chocolate and biscuits by 2030, up from 80% today. As such, Marathi noted that the company has been targeting strategic acquisitions, such as an August deal to buy Cliff Bar for $2.9 billion, and that the gum sale further moves the company's portfolio toward that goal. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported, citing an Anti-Defamation League's just-released annual analysis of FBI hate crime data for 2021, that hate crime is increasing in the Midwest, with the number of incidents reported in Illinois up by almost two-thirds, even with fewer jurisdictions reporting, indicating an increase in hate crimes from 56 in 2020 to 91 in 2021. And as Heinz noted, the real figure would almost certainly be higher, but the number of government entities reporting such data dropped by half in 2021. Chicago did not report at all in the first quarter and reported zero hate crimes in the last three quarters of the year, according to the ADL. However, as Heinz also points out, the Chicago Police Department disputes that it didn't report data on hate crime. The department reports via the state rather than directly to the FBI. That according to police spokesperson Don Terry. 
According to city data, reported hate crimes in Chicago soared from 80 in 2020 to 109 in 2021 and 168 so far this year in 2022. In the nine-state Midwest region, FBI figures compiled by the ADL showed an increase from 757 incidents in 2020 to 901 in 2021. The group told Cranes that that's consistent with national figures, which showed the third highest number of hate crimes in a decade, despite the lack of reporting from Florida, much of California, and many other big cities like Los Angeles, in addition to Chicago. In a statement, ADL Midwest Regional Director David Goldenberg said the group is, quote, deeply disappointed by the reporting gaps, adding, quote, data informs policy and without the ability to track trends over time, we cannot adequately address and prevent hate-fueled crimes or the harm they inflict. The FBI defines hate crimes as those that involve attacks and other criminal conduct based on race, gender, and gender identity, religion, ability, sexual orientation, or ethnicity. Collection of such data was started as per a directive from Congress in 1990. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.